Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind the AI profile pick app, Ronnie Fidel. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Hi, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. This is, uh, we actually, we talked a month or so ago when we were talking about doing the show, but uh, scheduling wise, a little peek behind the curtain, we're, <laughs> we're like sort of dancing around uh, holidays and vacations and stuff. This AI category, is that what you call it? Like, you know, the chat GBT as well as all the stable diffusion stuff. Do you just call that AI? Is there a name for this? I guess you'd want to call it maybe generative AI. Generative. Okay. Because AI is like, it feels like an older and more broad category than these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like this space is moving so ridiculously fast that I didn't want to record early like I often do for the show. So we're kind of, this is the first one after break. Uh, so I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, it's been it's been wild, right? The, the behind the curtains thing is that we, we talked about this a month ago and... It, it's still going fast. It's still changing on a weekly basis. Uh, I feel like everyone's just keeps on catching up to to, <laughs> to whatever the the new thing is. Uh, yeah, it's been wild, and I think it will continue on being wild for the for the foreseeable future. Before we get into that, and I have like a million questions in this area, uh, I want everyone to get a little bit of a background on who you are. So the questions I asked to start this off is uh, where are you from? Do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then what was your career like that led up to this sort of generative AI space that you've been playing in? I'm, I'm from Lebanon. I'm Lebanese, born and raised. Uh, and then I went to, to France for, uh, for, for higher education, right, for uni. So, uh, so I studied software engineering there. And right out of school, I joined Apple. Um, first on macOS and then on iOS. So I worked at Apple for about six years uh, as part of the application frameworks team. So I worked on Spotlight, sharing iCloud, iCloud Sync and iCloud Drive, So which became the Files app. So th that's kind of my career path uh, at Apple. And at some point I was like, uh, it would be great to you know, explore the world uh, and kind of switch it up career-wise. And I knew that I wanted to leave the corporate space for a little while just to kind of experiment with my own things, uh, develop my own products, really own uh, a product from, from A to Z, be it development, design, marketing, and just learn as much as possible. And that's what I had done. And so I left Paris in 2019 so that was three, three and a half years ago um, and set out to just kind of YOLO, like, you <laughs> know, fi 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 figure it out. Right. Uh, and I started developing smaller apps. Um, so there's Mission Control Plus, an app that helps you just take control of all of the windows that show up in Mission Control, uh, being able to. So it's kind of a OS tweak. Um, and the batteries app, which tracks all of your devices' batteries. And these were kind of hits, even though they were kind of very small, targeted, very specific apps. Yeah, and on the Mac too, right? Were those in the Mac App Store or are they uh, like separately deployed or distributed? They both use uh, private API. Ah, okay. 
the choice was made for you then. <laughs> choice was made for me. So, so I can't uh, sell them on the App Store. So um, yeah, I sell them off of my own website. How did you, how did those end up being hits? They weren't through, you know, the Mac App Store. What was your sort of marketing? E- even before talking about marketing, I, why did I want to create these apps, right? It, it kind of started off that way. It's like, it had been these two problems solved by Mission Control Plus and batteries had been nagging me for, for years. And so, so they were on my list. It's like, I would love Mac OS to do this someday. And it became a nagging issue in the sense that like on almost, you know, you just needed to make it happen. This is annoying. I needed them. I needed them, (laughs) both of them. And so, so that's, that's how I, you know, thought of creating them. That's how I developed them. And it just turned out that there were so many people that had these same two nagging issues. So I imagine I kind of lucked out on it in the sense that there were so many other people that had that same uh, nagging issue. And that kind of helped marketing it helped it quite a bit uh i only launched on product hunt i think and i didn't have you know that many twitter followers or twitter audience but it just seemed like these uh issues were nagging enough so so that people it clicked to people nice well that's cool and those are still Mm. those are still in the store too or not in the store but those are still available on your website right they're still available they're they're still up to date yeah okay so you have you have some mac utility apps how how did we get from that to not a mac utility app an ios app built around you know this generative ai uh art sort of space what's the path there after batteries came out uh, i was sort of in exploratory mode and wanting to play around with different technologies things that i hadn't touched before doing some some web dev some uh some electron Right, just to kind of try something new and trying to make some kind of product or business out of it. And that didn't really pan out. Uh, quite interestingly, if you're ideating and trying to launch a new product, do stick to what you know. Do not try to learn a new technology at the same time. Like that will slow you down. And then the pandemic hit. And um, at that point, I started contracting for, for Snap, Snapchat for mm. a while. And that kind of dove me back into the iOS world. So uh, so kind of steered away from macOS, went back into iOS. And I did that for about one year full time. So stopped focusing on, on, on the indie side of things. After that one year, I had decided, okay, like I'm going to dive back into the indie world, but this time it's going to be kind of the more straightforward, streamlined way of developing, meaning back into the app store, focusing on developing something for uh for, for ios because the market is there the the mac app store market felt a bit smaller and uh it just made more sense to be, develop something for ios and so i set out to develop a a kind of a small portfolio of apps of editing apps so a uh interactive audio editor where um so PodBuddy is this app that transforms your your audio content, let's say a podcast clip or a music clip, into kind of an Instagram story-like UI that you can share on a uh, video that you can share on social media. Mm. And after that, I uh, developed VidCap, which is a captioning app for, for videos. And I had set out to develop these because I had always been interested in designing and making editing UI. So, or editing, editing tools. So anything that you can, you know, add media to a sort of canvas 
Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I had always been interested as a kind of experiment to just develop something like that. So, so I set out to, to make these uh, two apps. Put them on the iOS App Store. And I started also, you know, I, I got in contact with iOS marketing on the App Store. I got in contact with marketing on the App Store. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, ASO, knowing how to monetize any an app on the App Store um, and kind of just becoming more in sync with with how to develop an App Store business. Like you were digging, you were digging into those and becoming interested in like growing that skill. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So it's kind of uh, how to create products that delight me and others but also how to create a business out of it. Yeah. And so I became more tied in with the, with the App Store business in general, right? It, it is its own ecosystem. And I yeah. felt that there was opportunity there. And so, so I just got into that. At that point, I started contracting for Mighty, uh, which was a web browser that is based in the cloud, yeah. that is streamed onto your machine. So all the rendering, all the heavy lifting is done on the cloud for you. And then what you receive is just a video stream of that rendered content. I did a lot of prototyping and kind of ideating for what the browser of the future could look like at Mighty. And at some point, there was kind of a, you know, we had finished all of the, the prototyping tasks. We still had a few, but this generative AI thing started becoming, you know, more, let's say, present, right? We, we started seeing more of it on, on, on Twitter and tech circles, etc. And just playing around with these tools at the time, the CEO was like, it would be interesting to explore uh, something in this space because this tech is it's something else. We haven't seen anything like that in such a long time. Like this could be something big. And so from prototyping web browsers, we started prototyping, testing out these uh, generative AI art APIs, call them, right? We started playing out with Stable Diffusion and thinking how can we make interesting tools based on that? Uh, and that became Playground AI, uh, which you can visit at playgroundai.com. It is a bit of a generative AI tool slash social network where you can see other people's creations, you can remix other people's generated AI work, etc. That's right. Okay. I have seen this before. And at that point, I had felt like I had swallowed the red pill. I was bitten by the AI bug. I was I was all in on this. I was like, this is going to be this is going to change everything. And at that point, I had finished or stopped my contract with with Mighty, just to kind of explore how to, how can I can solve problems using AI. It kind of like everything became a nail, and AI <laughs> was the hammer that I was wielding. It kind of did. Uh, but I did feel like, oh my God, like this is so transformative. This will change so many things that I, I, I better jump on the bandwagon. There is a hype around this. Like, obviously, I'm, I won't uh, hide this fact. But I, I was, yeah, so deep into this. I was like, okay, let's, let's start making products around this. We've been living through a decade, I guess, of Web3 and crypto kind of being the the red pill like this is i everything's a nail because i'm holding this hammer and everybody was searching for how do i use this tech that's cool on something and everybody was just trying to come up with products and the ai thing or generative ai thing 
feels like it started with obvious products, but then you can imagine a thousand more. Like it, it just seems like there's a much more obvious fertile ground for actual products that people would want uh, in this space. And I def I share a similar feeling as you, where I can just imagine like a thousand possibilities. Like if the tech gets a little bit better, imagine this and imagine that. I feel the interesting thing about the current state of generative AI is that what we got with DALI APIs such as DALI Stable Diffusion is like going from from nothing to something so fast. Yeah, it just felt like a shock. We immediately got good enough. Uh, instead of, and maybe that's why the whole world is still reacting to this. Like we got from zero to good enough so fast to compare it with web three. I kind of agree is like, I, I was never bitten by that bug. I, I, it just always felt like maybe it's my lack of imagination, but I could not conceive of an interesting application to make out of all of these web three technologies. Yeah. As somebody who doesn't live in the world of finance, or uh, investment vehicles or whatever. Yeah, I, it wasn't like I looked at that and thought, oh my gosh, the possibilities. And so admittedly, I'm in the category of people that it's easy to dunk on. You know, I know I'm in the space where I don't know it well enough to really make fun of it as much as maybe I do. But I do live in being bad at writing copy and being okay at uh, illustrating things. And so these generative AI you know, ideas that have come out so far, it's like, yes, I imagine this tool built into uh, Photoshop. And yes, I can immediately see where I would utilize this. And, you know, people are already doing that all over the place. A hundred percent. It's just so amazing that these tools, just one tool, right? Taking just stable diffusion, for example, it's like there's this one tool that you can prompt that has so many applications, whereas Back in the day, you had to form a team to solve each of the problems that this thing could solve. For example, I don't know, remove a background or outpaint a, outpaint an image, like add, you know, around the borders, add add more content, etc. Adobe had, you know, teams working around the clock just for each of these features. And then we, you know, one API lands that can do all of these and do them quite well. That's a good way of phrasing it. Because every Adobe Max has been... Uh... Somebody in basically a white lab coat coming up and showing off the latest uh, content, you know, background removal that you can run in in After Effects. And look, it can work on video, but it's like they're opening up a script and running a thing. And you're just like, wow, in 10 years or five years, this is going to be amazing. And everything with uh, Stable Diffusion and Dolly, it feels like wow, next week we can now do XYZ. Like this, the pace of of improvement has been ridiculous, which is, I think, part of what adds to that feeling of excitement. I feel like every time excitement, worldwide excitement starts waning, some new advancement in AI just lands and it just renews, gives every, everyone that dopamine rush and it keeps on going. Yeah, that, yeah that's a good, <laughs> that's a good uh, comparison. Before we get into, you know, the product that you then built through this excitement, I think we should address like some of the, the controversy around it in terms of like legally everything about this is still murky. And I don't mean that in a, you know, is this shady or not? I think everybody's pretty upfront with exactly what's going on. It's just that 
the laws in every country are still catching up because of how fast this is going and like what your take on that is. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but hey, that was a couple of weeks ago. And like we talked about then everything will probably change by the time we record. So I don't want to like yeah, not uh, address that though. Oh, for sure. The funny thing is like a month ago, we, we had briefly uh, discussed this. And what I had said last month is like my view on this. And again, I am not a lawyer, so maybe yeah. I'd like to more talk about the ethics of things more than more than the legality. Right. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, it was back then. It was still evolving on a weekly basis just to kind of also get as many data points as possible from smart people around the world. And it's still ongoing now. My, my viewpoint is really is still evolving. But one thing that I'm kind of still fixated on, uh, to be honest, is... How, how does a human being get inspiration? How does a human being learn how to create art? It is never created, you know, in, in a vac or in a bubble. It's always born out of inspiration from other artists. Obviously, and again, we're, if we're just taking the human being example, like a human artist, if it looks copied, if it seems, if it's obvious that it's plagiarized, then that is considered unethical. But... There's just no way that you can create art without having seen art. There's no way you can just, you know, create amazing masterpieces without seeing, without learning how art works from other great artists, right? I still haven't fully formalized it because what, how do you translate that to a machine? Like, how do you yeah. teach a machine to just be inspired by art, teach it what art is and actually tell it this is great art and this is not? Uh, and then expected to produce some kind of art. My, my viewpoint has not fully matured on that. It's not, you know, black and white. If it were easy, then it would be more obvious in the sense that uh, we do want, like technology is moving forward. We do want machines to be able to create illustrations and art, but we don't want machines to basically steal art from artists. And what is the healthy middle? I'm still not sure. This is evolving. This this whole thing did not exist, at least to me, six months ago. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy one. There's sort of explicitly not a fine line between like plagiarism and stealing something and inspiration. It is like very fuzzy and everybody's going to have a different impression of that of where that line is and yeah how do you like define that at a machine level is difficult the comparison i keep running to is it feels like we're in the same like beginning era as like the napster days with mp3s another example of one that went the other way is like the vhs days like when vhs first came out it was like yeah people should be able to record whatever's on their tv and it's like you can imagine during that time that seeming obviously wrong. Like, well, you don't own that. Like the, the, the corporation owns that. And now nobody think gives a second thought to like, yes, of course you should be able to record things with a VHS. Well, I guess maybe now that's a bad example because with Hulu and all those, it kind of reversed on us, but right. you get the idea. Like we kind of went a certain direction and the whole world and industry, you know, adapted to that. And then Napster with MP3s was the same thing. It was like, nobody knew this is illegal because it wasn't illegal it was being figured out and it sort of feels like we're in that phase again where we have a tool that is obviously has an extremely high utility and how mm -hmm. do we 
manage that and like you know it's gonna have to be figured out I, at least that's where that's where i'm landing with it it could be interesting to to give back to artists whose whose works have made it basically into the model right so um i'm guessing there's there's a few artists definitely gonna gonna botch the name but i think it's greg rutkowski that name has been seen in like every stable diffusion prompt available basically because uh he is an artist on art station and uh his style is somehow um I don't know, sexy for, for stable diffusion. It just works. And so by, by Greg Rutkowski just appears in so many prompts and it would almost be unfair to have Greg Rutkowski producing art for the world being reused by every application based on stable diffusion and not having the artist, I'm guessing maybe paid back, but at least, um, getting some sort form of attribution, right? That, that's the minimum. And there are some platforms that already give attribution. If, if the prompt has the artist's name, they get attribution, they get a link back. I'm not saying this is enough, but th this is a start. I don't know enough about it, but that's where it starts feeling weird is when it's like, it is explicitly from this one person that you're right. That you're generating something. Right. Um, and I know I like, I don't want to go too far into this because I'm pretty ignorant of it, but like stable, was it stable diffusion Two that added the, the feature where you can basically opt out of being included in the model or is that the next model that they're going to build? I believe it was art station that added an option to be opt, um, to opt out of being included in stable diffusion. Oh, like it's specific, uh, databases basically and artists are also angry at uh at this option because i think it's opt out so i think it's opt yeah. in by default and you have to opt out manually it's it's also about understanding what 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 solution kind of serves everyone equally what feels fair uh is it a spotify like model where you if you actually use uh artwork from a specific artist they they get paid back somehow they get some some form of royalty Interestingly, that would change the whole economics out yeah, of it, for right? sure. because currently you might as well treat it as stolen art and it's all baked into this brain that is the, you know, stable diffusion V1.5 model and you can hash and rehash this art as much as you want and, and just uh, make it your own, right? Into your own creations out of a prompt. It, it, it could feel unfair for sure. So... But currently, it's it's almost for free, right? Uh, I mean, it just it's just, just a GPU cost. What would it become if you start having to pay a small fraction of in royalty of royalty um, to to every artist whenever you generate the prompt? And how how do you distribute that fairly? Could be an interesting problem to solve. It's really I don't know the whole space, both on the product side, like we were sort of fawning over a second ago, and then from a sort of ethics legal side, uh, I find it all really fascinating as an outside observer. I think, you know, we're in that phase where both technologically and uh, I guess legally, everything's getting hashed out. That feels like it's going to drive the next 10 years of what this space looks like, um, which is really fascinating too. I'll pull us off of this uh, train because there's probably people way deeper in this than either of us uh, having <laughs> more maybe accurate conversations about this uh, on other podcasts. This episode of Launched is sponsored by, well, maybe you. 
If you listen to the Christmas special, you'll know that I've committed to growing the podcast this year, and that starts today with two new initiatives. The first is sponsorships, which will sound, well, a lot like this. If you're a company and interested in sponsoring the show, please reach out. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes to our new sponsor page, which will have more information, metrics about the show, all that kind of stuff. If you don't want to hear ads on this show, though, the second initiative is for you. Launched is now on Patreon. There are a few tiers with some different perks, um, but all of them will come with an ad-free feed of the show. I've got some ideas for special content I could add in the future as well, but for now, I'm keeping it simple while providing a way for folks to support the show directly if they'd like to. Please don't feel any pressure to join in with this, though. This show is a passion project, and the fact that so many of you all listen uh, and give me the opportunity to talk to all these inspiring creators that I get to talk to on the show is the biggest support that you can provide at all. These two initiatives will allow me to pay my excellent editor, Jonathan, and to be completely transparent, I'd love to make some money off the show if uh, there's some extra to spare. So thank you all so much for listening, and new patrons especially uh, for the direct support. Now, back to the show. Let's pull back out to uh, the app you ended up building. So you're you're playing with this as part of the contract, that job that you're doing, um, the generative art you know, sort of world. What led to the AI profile pick app? Was that like the first idea you had, or were you trying to figure out you know, what's a product that you can build around this? I, I was indeed trying to figure out what kind of product I could create in the space. At around that time, um, I was watching a YouTube channel that just tracks uh, advances in AI. And, and it's this guy, Madvid Pro, that just plays around with all of uh, you know, the new technologies coming out. If I remember correctly, he was using this tool called Astria back then, which is an API um, that is based on Dreambooth and Stable Diffusion. So what Dreambooth is, is you could consider it as a layer on top of Stable Diffusion where you can fine tune the model based on some kind of input images. For my own understanding here, so stable diffusion is giant model with you know millions of images and whatever magic sauce that they're doing to take text that you input and it turns that into an image based on this massive library of images that it understands. And then Dream Booth, you're saying Correct. is is a layer on top of that that will let you combine your own images into that model, essentially. Yes, so Dreambooth um, initially was a paper uh, written at Google that basically takes diffusion-based models and fine-tunes them into being able to add a new subject. So Stable Diffusion currently does understand, if you will, what a chair means. So if you write in, type in a prompt with the word chair in it, it will pop out a, an image uh, containing a chair, right? But it doesn't know who Charlie Chapman is. You, you're still not famous enough, Charlie. So it, yeah, it does yeah. know who Brad Pitt, it does know who Brad <laughs> Pitt is, but because, you know, Brad Pitt exists on the web and um, it's, quite, it's quite popular, it doesn't know who Charlie Chapman is yet. So what you can do using Dream Booth is fine tune the model into teaching it uh, a new subject. So okay. you add in an identifier uh, that Stable Diffusion st doesn't know. So you can't use something like dog, cat, or chair, but some sort of random identifier. And then 
you teach it, these are the instances of this identifier. So it's, it's pictures of you, let's say pictures of, of your face. So once you put in, let's say about 10 or 20 images of you with this instance name, that's enough for stable diffusion, the fine-tuned version of stable diffusion, to learn what or who Charlie Chapman is. And so then I could say something like Charlie Chapman in a chair and it's combining its understanding of chair and understanding now new understanding of Charlie Chapman into a single image. Yes. So that's generally what that's what Dream Booth is. You said Dream Booth was just a white paper that somebody wrote or Google somebody at Google wrote and then it was productized, I guess. So Dream Booth is this paper written at Google, yes, um, and it's based on two parts, the fine-tuning part and a diffusion-based model that Google owns th uh, that is not public called Imogen. Ah, okay. Um, so someone figured out how to re-implement Dream Booth but not use Imogen as um, a way to generate uh, images by use stable diffusion. So, so that was released as open source. We haven't s specified here. Stable diffusion is one of these models, but importantly, it's open source, right? So anybody can download it, run it on their machines or on a virtual machine or whatever, right? Exactly. Um, so the model itself can be used. The, the training data is not available. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, train your own version of stable diffusion, meaning to train it from scratch. But the model is out there and the code that calls into that model is out there as well. So yes, you can run it on your machine to run inferences, which means image generations based on a prompt. Um, so that is out there. And the fine tuning part of Dream Booth off of that paper was implemented and released as open source and you just plug the, the two together um, Dream Booth and Stable Diffusion, and you can start training any object or any person, have Stable Diffusion understand, quote unquote, understand um, that concept, and then generate any variation of uh, image containing that new subject. We have Stable Diffusion open source software uh, that, or at least op the model itself is open source so that you could build software around it to generate images from a prompt and now you have i already forgot the name but the, not dream booth but an open source implementation of the dream booth paper that lets you mm -hmm. basically add your own uh training to that stable diffusion model and that is also yes. open source so now you have the ability to take to add your own things to stable diffusion's understanding of the world to make your prompts more specific that's the sort of end result of these elements? That is correct. So you have these two, um, and even better, and that's why the, the, the bar was so low, and there was also an API. There was also someone, Astria, who had made an API to do all of the, the ML work, etc. for you, was implemented for you. And, and that's how, and it was basically uh, a service that, you know, cost three or five dollars, etc., to where you could, uh, you know, just send off your own images and you'd get a fine-tuned model ready-made for you. And then you can prompt it with whatever prompts you want and it would generate these avatars for you. Okay, cool. 
so the bar the bar it was like the level of entry it was it was pretty easy and at that point it kind of started just clicking that there should be an app for that around the same point like other indie devs had discovered estria as well so uh levels io and then Postma started tweeting you know some um kind of thinly veiled tweets about a product that you know could leverage something like that or create your own maybe pictures or avatars and around that point you know knowing about astria i immediately knew like ios is the place for this this is where your photos live yeah ui could be made very very simple very intuitive and the result could feel magical and at that point i had decided like the web is not the way to go and and these two in the indie hackers or indie developers were primarily web developers and and were making these hints that they were shipping something to uh, on the web and yeah i mean i am an ios dev and i knew from the beginning like you'd get such a better user experience on ios and so i went like 100 miles per hour trying to implement this asap and release it on the app store um funnily enough because of a lack of GPU computing scalability, um, Astria had to move to another backend provider. So they were on AWS and they moved elsewhere. And overnight, they moved from $3 per fine-tune to $20. Was that while you were building this or after you released? It was the day I was releasing it, I think. No, so, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes. And, and that's, uh, that, that was a good lesson to learn, right? Like own your backend, own, own your infra yeah. uh, now for obvious reasons. Um, because I knew that, again, this, um, this would be a winner on iOS, but the pricing had to be very fair, especially that not a lot of people were uh, familiar with the technology. So might as well seem like like a scam app right that is um asking for so much money up front right um so five dollars could have been okay uh but charging you know after apple stacks and how much it costs to run on the back end charging like 25 or 30 dollars that would seem like a big investment and so that would kind of stifle uh the app's initial popularity or, or launch right but i had just decided like I needed to launch. I needed to launch ASAP, and uh, and I knew that compute would get cheaper. Like that's how it always works, right? Right. It's going to get cheaper with time, but now's the time to just launch and get something out there. So uh, it took about forty-eight or seventy-two hours of not much sleep to to really get a V1 running, uh, and then yeah, I just put it out into the world. Wait, 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 wait! Like that was how long it took you to build the app? To build the app, yes. Um, yeah, it was about 72 hours. Oh it was gosh. a simple app. It was a simple app, just calling into, <laughs> into a backend. And it I was a V1, like yeah. bare bones, right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you had the idea. And when you said you were off to the races, I mean, it's like zero to in the... Or submitting to Apple in less than a week. Yes. Um, something that did help. Uh, Firebase is is honestly amazing like that's that's my take on firebase uh like kudos to them these guys really did the job they really do help you go from from zero to 100 quite fast um and thanks to my previous apps i already had my kind of standard library right yeah like ui components all these helper methods etc so that also helped a lot into getting something done 
Wow. Okay. So that's pretty crazy. And I, I assume part of you rushing through this is you know that other people are going to do the same thing. And it's, it's sort of like a land grab, you know, type situation where you want to get that early press. You want to get that early set of reviews. So you're sort of the established, you know, version of this. Yes. Were you, were you one of the first ones then to get out there with this? One of the first ones. Yes. Um, either the, the first or the second. And it was almost a month ahead of the big players such as Lenza, Prequel. Um, so like these heavy hitting companies with an existing user base of millions of users that they can just simply send a push notification to saying, hey, there's this new feature. Regarding your point about needing to go very fast and chipping and putting something out there, that, that is also related to this new generation of AI where it's very hard to build a moat. Mm. So since this technology is open and it's so magical, it's so powerful, but accessible at an API call. So technology like GPT-3 or, or, or Sable Diffusion, well, now anyone can build these magical apps in, you know, in days. So there is no moat. So the new kind of um, advantage that you need is possibly better marketing or maybe niche down on something. But the, the, the bar of entry has just become so low that this magical effect is basically one prompt away or one API call away, right? And yeah. so, yeah, anyone can build something like that nowadays. <laughs> you spent a couple days building this thing. Um, although, I mean, we're saying it like it wasn't, it was this small amount of work, but you're building off of this amount of time that you had spent learning and understanding the whole space, right? Like knowing how to use all these models and these APIs, part of that is the experience that you had. But either way, you spent this time getting it out there. You had to update your pricing, presumably on the fly, day of, but you got it out there. So how was that How was that launch itself? The launch was exciting because even at a price point of, I think it was around $30, $28 or $30, uh, you still have these early adopters that just want to try new technology that kind of uh, you forget about the price point for a minute because they know that it's still raw, it's still fresh, but they they would want to try any new technology no matter what, right? And and they love giving feedback as well. Like, I love early adopters. Like, they kind of put blind trust into, into a product. A lot more willing to accept bugginess and stuff because what you're comparing to is uh, running through what all the blog posts were doing a week before where they're like, all right, you can download all these little, you know, scripts that you run locally. And then you need to like rent this space on some Google server somewhere. And it's like, yes. What if instead I just hit a button to send, you know, $30 over to this person on the app store. And then it just did all that for me. Like that's the comparison. Exactly. And it's also that, um, if they do that on, on you know, Google Colab, then they would have to also research into writing their own prompts, getting yeah. the effect that they, that they desire, etc. So it is quite uh, like time investment. Like it could, I mean, the whole thing on Google Colab could take one hour just to train, fine tune, etc. And then you get into another interface where you have to get 
some kind of prompting magic going to be able to create these avatars. So it's, it is true that all of this was productized for you, even though at a, it was at a price of, you know, $30, which is quite high, right? So even if you do compare it to, um, you know, paying an illustrator for one illustration of you and the back and forth, or getting, um, you know, similar images of decent quality from a photographer, still $30, uh, with that blind trust could seem like a, like, like a high price point, right? Um, yeah. So that became a priority very early on. Uh, I knew that I had to reduce the price point somehow. So that essentially translates into reducing backend costs. And that became the priority is rolling out my own backend. So, so that's what happened. Uh, eventually fully focused on rolling out uh, the backend because all of the players in the, in the space we're using that same API. We're using Astria. So Astria was free to choose their price point and essentially drive the whole market to, you know, they, they, they capped it at a minimum of, let's say, $20 or $15. So whatever Astria's price was, everyone else followed along. Yep, exactly. And that's, yeah, when I had to put kind of my ML hacker hat, knowing almost nothing about machine learning and starting to, to have to learn how to, I mean, use and tweak uh, PyTorch and Stable Diffusion and Dreambooth and understand all of the the bits there. Um, and yeah, so since so at that point, I uh, I deployed my own backend and the cost went from I think between fifteen and twenty dollars on Astria to it was like around four dollars I think at the wow. time. Wow! Right. Yeah. 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 And, and that was the new unlock, right? That was the how to how to get the next. Uh, a thousand or ten thousand users is by charging five dollars and and not and not thirty dollars. Something that I guess a lot of people know, but people do not like to pay for apps. People do not <laughs> like to pay for uh, like a small minority of people are okay with paying for things, especially on the app store. And so charging any amount, even one dollar upfront, instead of having a freemium kind of model. Uh, rubs people off the wrong oh, yeah. way, and and I saw that in the in the reviews, right? So there were so many, um, unfortunately, but there were so many one star reviews. I'm like, oh, there's no free trial, right? Even though you know you try to explain that this costs money on the back end, and it's just the economics of it just don't work out. Where I can uh, offer a free trial first. Most people aren't interacting with software that has that much of a. Uh unit cost right like unit economics aren't really a thing in our world so pricing is is bonkers and backwards in software because like per unit cost is like zero almost but the actual cost to build everything costs money and so you have to do weird things but you actually had real unit economics to deal with yes and there wasn't FAQ in the app, there was an explainer that just lays the whole thing out, explains why uh, it costs upfront. And it's because, well, uh, you know, we have a GPU on, on the back end that we have to park for one hour just to fine tune your photos. And even then the reviews were like, I know that there's an explainer, but I am still, I still don't <laughs> buy the argument. It's like, just people don't, don't want to take it. Yeah, that's funny. Man, yeah, and like, and everything about it's unproven, right? Uh, there's not a, 
any norms built around this in terms of people's expectations like weather apps you can get away not get away with that's the wrong word but people are kind of trained to understand like it costs money to figure all this out or to pay apis to figure this out but generating an image is something that you're used to happening on your device itself so it doesn't feel like that should be costing the company money um, even though it obviously right. really is in this case especially when when you don't get a sample um, like yeah. I wish the technology worked that way. I wish uh, you know we could sample a few images, but it's it's a bit of all or nothing. It's we gotta fine tune the model first, and that's where most of the cost goes in. And then it's it's not it's not that costly afterwards. Right. The actual prompts in each image, the cost is pretty low relative to generating that actual model. Right. Yes. Interestingly. I had record sales when when Lenza came out. Lenza having millions of users and Lenza having millions of sales really did, and, and a huge boom on social media, really did teach people about the AI avatar thing, call it. So yeah. people started understanding that, oh, this thing exists. I've seen it on other people. So it added a lot of social proof. In the sense that, well, all of my friends have one, so this thing kind of works, and and these avatars look cool, and so I'm gonna try this thing out. And I understand because my friends told me as well that this thing costs money upfront. They paid first, and they got these results. Mm, yeah, that's true. Then the trust it started building trust, right? Interestingly, competitors, bigger bigger players in in on the market or in the field brought this into the mainstream, removed so much friction and resulted in record sales for AI profile pick. I feel like also this is where your naming for the app probably helped a significant amount. Like I feel like in our indie circles, especially people listening to this or people that have had on would want the name, like most products you make, you want it to have this sort of cute name that you can slap on stickers and it's like a whole you know it's a very different thing but in your case when you're in this sort of rat race where it's like there's a thousand competitors instantly uh you have to play the aso game having a name like ai profile pick established yourself so that when one of these giant players with all the marketing money and user bases when they come out with something that goes viral like if you don't remember the name what are you going to search in the app store you're probably going to put right. uh well it's an ai thing and i want a profile picture and then boom that's i mean that's your app right yes the, uh to be honest though that is a side effect obviously the aso um gains here are uh, are good but it was to be honest a lack of imagination on my end in the <laughs> sense that it's more like because this was quite rushed for v1 i didn't have the time to really um give it give the app that much character right right so actually give it a, a cute name with identity with a nice um app icon that is really fits to, to what kind of identity you want to to give to the app uh the app had to be generic on day one because you know what does the app do it's it creates ai avatars or profile pictures this is ai profile pic uh the actual app icon is someone who has actually used our app and we and just created a support ticket because they needed help 
and they sent us the avatars they had created and we're like these actually look pretty good like can we use them i basically bought the rights to use it as an app icon ha, that's pretty cool in exchange for free credits <laughs> that's that's awesome it makes me reminds me of a clubhouse remember well i say remember i guess they're still around but how they would yeah. have a different uh like picture every every time of i guess that was a real user i don't remember what the story was there but that's pretty cool yeah exactly so it 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 kind of showcases what kind of result you could get from the app but at the same time uh, well v1 had my face on it and i couldn't wait until you know removing my face from it so (laughs) that's that's kind of how it worked out that makes sense yeah that would i would not like that myself (laughs) nope so we already talked about lensa coming in and in your case they did a lot of the legwork essentially of helping build this as like a legitimate trustworthy thing i guess um so in your case that was mostly helpful what about like because i have looked in the app store recently even since we talked Mm -hmm. like a month ago and it seems like there are just a thousand of these apps now how has that been like have you have you felt the sort of land rush of a bunch of other people coming in and how have you differentiated i guess having a back end is probably a piece of that i feel like the top five apps are getting 90 90 plus percent of the market and then it's just a long tail of these smaller apps making peanuts uh and getting almost no users etc and are you're in the top five apps I'm not even sure. Like the app is doing quite well, but it's it's far from making uh, the, the millions. So the, sure. the trend went down as well. Lenza was making about, I imagine, like I saw that on Twitter, but they were making about one million a day for about twenty days straight. Right? Uh, AI Profile Big did not make one million a day, any day. <laughs> so it is a smaller app, but it's making decent income. But yeah, the, the, the big players came in. It was such like this Dream Boost and Sable Diffusion technology was such a good way to revamp apps that have existed on the App Store that are like face tuning apps or mm, for removing yeah. backgrounds or blemishes. But Which is a whole apps. category on its own. Yes. And it was such a good way for them to revamp their product and add this, these magical new features, right? These, these magic avatars. And then it is true that the app store now is crowded with this, this kind of app, uh, with avatar apps. That's why it was quite important to be there very early on because yeah. having had a one month head start has also meant that um, the app has had, AI Profile Pick has had a lot of app store inertia. So it's got a lot of reviews, ratings, downloads. So it just boosts the app on, on the app store. And right now, um, the the name of the game is ASO and adding interesting features. So um, so I'm working on a few new features. There's a few in the pipeline. Once your uh, model has been fine-tuned, since it doesn't cost that much to do extra generations, is to do interesting things with that, be it being mm-hmm. able to do. So with this app store in inertia, it's also about how to keep the, the ball rolling because there's still an influx of users. There's still an influx of shares, of generations on the app. And the, the idea is to how, um, how to keep the ball rolling for, for the, the long while to come. One of the things we talked about 
uh, a while ago was like how fast the whole space is moving. And I think when we were talking last month, you were like, some new paper came out this morning that I'm trying to to figure out. Somebody's in the process of trying to implement that paper now. Does that pace of change in that space, is that coming into play with with this area? Or is it kind of like those are kind of moved in a different direction than what would affect like your app and business now? I feel like Stable Diffusion v1.4 or 1.5 was really the the mother load Mm. that was kind of the big thing that uh shook up um the industry and just gave so many so gave so much to to product makers uh i do feel that it's slowed down a bit since then uh so interestingly it, it comes in waves it doesn't feel like it comes on a daily or weekly basis this kind of unlock that this technology or like AI in general creates, um, it does come in waves. I don't think the the, the wave has been as, um, you know, the few waves of, of recent times have been as big as the Stable Diffusion release. But I do think that there will be other medium-sized or bigger waves to come. Do you feel like you have to kind of be on top of that so that when one of those comes through that could have an impact you know, you're one of the people that's jumping on that quickly. Thinking forward, it definitely is stressful to be on the lookout for something and then to to ride that wave. So I, I don't think I would want to ride every wave. Well, right, because most of them, you know, once things get going, most of them probably won't produce, you know, actual results for your business specifically. Um, yes. So that would start getting really overwhelming. <laughs> Yes, and so there's the aspect. And there's also the aspect of lessons learned from shipping AI profile pick. It's understanding uh, the value of a moat, the value of uh, not wanting to go head-to-head with the big players with no moat um, that can outspend you when it comes to ad spend, for example, or have a bigger marketing team or have these big uh, influencer collabs. Right. Mm, yeah. So going head to hand with Lenza is is impossible. It just dictates a lot when it comes to to doing business, which is quite an interesting challenge as well. So it's still fun. Going. Do you feel like you were going head to head with the big players? It sounded like when you were describing it earlier that them entering the market was helpful for you, or was it? Do you think that was helpful for you in the short term, but then long term that becomes more of a challenge? It never felt like uh, I was going head to head with Lenza. Or, or the other players, because I, I just do not have the user base. They have user bases with millions of users, meaning right. they can shoot up to the top of the store within a sending a push notification. Like This is the actual value that they can propose that I, I do not have. So I was just glad that the interesting thing is like Lenza as a player is so big that they created a small way for me to surf on. So right. they're a whale. Lenza's tail just hit the water and it created this ripple for everyone to to write off of. Well, it's I mean, it's kind of like what how a lot of people describe getting Sherlocked by a platform owner like Apple or Google or whatever, where it's like when they enter that space that you have had an app for a while and they implement it as a native feature in the platform it can sometimes be beneficial for you because it like highlights this as a thing that people might want. 
and legitimizes a business and then more people end up seeking you out because you're the more you know advanced version or whatever in that case it it works quite well when lenza for example uh launched the magic avatars feature but it was paid right and we right. were almost at the sa- offering it at the same price or even cheaper so it kind of made sense it's like a lot of people wanted to try both right let me because the, the avatars are not the same right yep. we, we pr- pr- produce uh, more photorealistic avatars and and we just have a different value proposition contrasting that with getting sherlocked is i would imagine it to hurt when apple sherlocks a feature and offers it for free and installed by default on the os yeah that's true right it's like I, I already have this feature and it doesn't cost anything so so now the value proposition of the existing product has to be so much higher for people to download it, install it, launch it, and and pay for it. The the last kind of big thing I wanted to hit on was, uh, and you sort of mentioned this, but like clearly this was a big wave uh, situation. Like, did you that wasn't going to last like forever in terms of the height of how popular it was? Um, but hopefully, it has a long tail. How has that played out? And did you realize it was like? a big wave and you didn't know what it would end or when it would end while it was happening? Like how was, how did that kind of go through in your mind? The whole thing so far. And even from the beginning, even though, you know, in monetary terms, it's, it could be a, a cash grab or a land grab. It was also just an experiment, right? It was even in part just to have fun. It's like, this seems pretty cool. Like the technology is pretty magical. So let's just launch something in the space and learn as much as possible, right? So there was always that aspect involved. One other aspect of it is learning how to launch viral products. And this this is where it leaves me. It leaves me into thinking what my next product would be, right? And it's always quite fun and interesting to to learn about marketing on one end, but also how social networks are born or or how virality works. Yeah. Right? So so I just consider it as kind of a V one or or experiment number one in a series of experiments in in launching viral products. Right. Not necessarily a V one just of this product itself, but in terms of your sort of career of launching products sort of in this area. Yes, exactly. Um, And that is also very much related to how to create products where um, users do the marketing for you, right? So so Mm. product-led growth or product-led marketing, uh, instead of having to force product onto users by spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in ad spend. And, you know, once you turn that um that spend off the the product dies off right so as an indie developer it's always interesting to seek out these kind of alternative ways of marketing products just to see if you can create something that can sustain itself without having to push it onto users um so that's so i treat it as experiment number one in this overarching uh in this in this arch of of potential products in the future i'm excited to see you know where where this app itself goes but also yeah what you have in store uh, for the future with the ai advances 
just the landscape is so bright it's just such an exciting time to be alive to be honest is i wonder if we're getting close to some kind of inflection point a lot of people are uh and a lot of smart people are talking about agi and that it could happen within our lifespan actual artificial intelligence what the singularity basically is that what you're talking about the singularity yes so okay yes uh so so general intelligence right yeah okay that's the word to have a kind of a sentient machine that is as intelligent or more intelligent than humans uh and a lot of smart people are betting on it so <laughs> that is it's just interesting right and on the way to get there if we do ever get there but it doesn't matter because on the way there's just so many interesting advances happening and the pace is so fast that as a technologist it's just so exciting yeah there's it's constantly spawning new opportunities new ideas for you know interesting products right it's like the space yeah. race uh we're not an interplanetary species like we thought we would be in a decade in like the 70s but we sure got a lot yeah. of cool stuff out of you know lots of big money spenders uh coming up with new technology at a rapid pace yes <laughs> uh well that's that's a good note to to sort of leave off on so i'll uh i'll ask you the question that i always try to wrap the show up with uh, which is what's like a person or people out there that have inspired you that you'd recommend other people check out? Someone that uh, appeared on on your podcast previously is Christian Selig, the maker oh, of yeah. Apollo. Yes, I, I just love his his spirit, his wholesomeness, uh, and the product he creates. So overall, yeah, he's definitely an inspiration on my indie journey. Cannot agree more on that. Uh, got a chance to hang out with him in person. Uh, over the summer at That's WWDC cool. and he is as he is online an exceptionally kind human being and also makes something that's a massive source of inspiration just as a, a dev and designer so uh yeah hard agree on that one awesome cool well um i guess we can go ahead and wrap this up so where can people find you and your work people can find me uh, mostly on twitter so it's twitter.com slash ronnie fidel r-o-n-y-f-a-d-e-l and uh, they can find my apps on fidel.io thank you so much for coming on uh this first episode of the of 2023 yeah this is a fun one charlie this was a pleasure thank you for having me yeah no the pleasure is all mine thanks for listening this episode was edited by Jonathan Ruiz. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C, or you can reach the show directly at launched.fm. You can also find me at mastodon.social as Charlie M. Chapman or the show at launched. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. Launched.